Hello, and welcome to Bold Conversations, a five-part series on the Immune Deficiency Foundation podcast aimed at advancing knowledge and understanding of health equity. Welcome to another episode of Bold Conversations, where we explore topics and issues related to health equity. I am your host, Dr. Nicole Rochester, Medical Advisor for Health Equity for the Immune Deficiency Foundation. And I am honored and thrilled and excited to have a very special guest today, Ms. Dion Stallings. Dion, thank you so much for coming on the Bold Conversations podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. It's, it's, it's really an honor. So Dion is a patient with primary immunodeficiency and several other rare diseases. Those of you that have been following the Bold Conversation series know that we've spoken to healthcare professionals and those related to healthcare policy, but this is such a treat to be able to speak to someone who is a patient and someone who has a lived experience. And I'm really looking forward to delving into this topic deeper with Dion. So to get started, Dion, I would love for you to share with the audience your diagnosis journey. We know that the journey to diagnosis for patients with PI is long and harrowed. And the understanding or assumption is that if it takes eight to 10 plus years for generally for people with PI, for those that are from minoritized or marginalized communities, the journey is likely even more um, prolonged and difficult. So I'd love for you to share your own story about how and when you were diagnosed with primary immunodeficiency. Okay, Nicole, it's a long story. It's too long for this podcast, but um, I will start the short version. It took 45 years. Um, it took 45 years for me to get my first um, diagnosis, My first, what I thought was my first rare diagnosis. I didn't know that the, some other things that I had were rare, but I got diagnosed with primary immune deficiency in um, 2014, actually on my mom's birthday. It was on a Wednesday, November 12th of 2014 was when I got diagnosed. Um, the first memory that I have of my PI being a problem, I probably was about four, four or five years old, and I got bit by a mosquito. And that mosquito bite opened up like really large on my right thigh. Um, and I got something called impetigo. Um, it was infected. Um, it was really grotesque. Um, in now that I look back on it and I remember my mother was like, would you stop scratching it? The doctor said that if you don't, if they told up me that me scratching it was making it infected. And so we would go back and forth to the doctor with this same, um, I still have the scar because it opened probably about the size of a small orange um, and antibiotics and the whole nine. I remember, I don't know if this doctor is still alive. I used to he used to be a regular at the emergency room here in uh, St. Louis at St. Louis Children's Hospital. And he would always be the doctor that I would see in the ER. Um, and as you well know, this was in the, the early 1974, 73, 74. And back then there was not um, a lot of black doctors that you could see. And also we were coming off, I, I can still remember my great grandmother saying that 
um, black people couldn't visit regular doctors. They had to see veterinarians. And so it was not common. I mean, it was not uncommon to go to the emergency room, just like now to have a PCP. It wasn't lack of insurance. And I'm, I'm sure that there was some kind of pay to pay as you go or whatever, but I used to see him a lot and I would see him. I saw him for that. And then he, another doctor came in and said that she's scratching it too much. You know, all, all, all that it encompasses, you're making it dirty. But I also used to go to the emergency room a lot for strep throat. I would have strep throat and ear infections. I won't say monthly, but I remember it being commonplace for years, like even in some adulthood. And only when I had a uh, hysterectomy in 2008 and that hysterectomy, I hemorrhaged and I bled for two days, almost two days. And when I went back in to get that um, hysterectomy repaired, that wound ended up getting infected. That was not uncommon either because I've had two children by C-sections. I've had multiple my myomectomies. Every time that I go under the knife, I always got infected. And I was always told, which is the craziest thing. I was told, you're not keeping it clean. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I'm wiping this with alcohol. So, you know, it's under the fold of the skin. I'm making sure it's clean, but I still was getting infected. And so to make a long story short, that infection led me to uh, a, on, a, on a journey of trying to get well. That infection turned in by me laying on the side that I was laying on for two days, I ended up getting a hernia. And I remember the doctor said that when I finally got in, when they opened me up to fix the um, hemorrhage or to figure out where I was hemorrhaging and get all of whatever they do when they open you up, that I only had, um, I want to say two and a half quarts of blood. I had gone into shock um, and they repaired it. But from that point, up until June of 2009, I was probably in the hospital four out of the five months total. It would be a, I would stay in the hospital for a week or two, and then I would go home and I would get worse and I would go back to the hospital. I would say, stay a month. Then I would go back. I would stay two weeks. And it was when I left the hospital, I would always get worse because in the hospital, you're giving antibiotics intravenously. You're not giving them orally. They would go send me home on oral antibiotics, but the oral antibiotics, like I said, have never really worked on me. And, um, I ended up going to, um, my doctor wouldn't open me back up. And this is something that I would like to, to say, we may get into it later. Doctors don't go, surgeons will not go behind other surgeons. They will tell you to go back to the surgeon that you got the original surgery from. And my doctor had God complex and he was like, and he delivered my daughter and he had been my doctor for 20 plus years oh, you always get infected. It's not a big deal. It's just going to take some time. Well, my home health care nurse was coming to my house in the winter time. It was really cold here in St. Louis and I'll never forget it. It was really cold. And I heard the crackling of her, some gravel 
coming up the driveway and I opened the door and she was like, you need to call your doctor. I smell you. Wow. And I was like, what? And she was like, no, you don't, not like a, a, a musty odor. She was like, infection has a smell to it. And she said, because it's cold outside, as soon as you open the door to let me in, I smelled you. And I was like, okay. So my doctor wouldn't open me back up. And I have a friend that lives in, in Maryland that told me exactly what to say. Because by this time, I'm getting really frustrated. It has been months. And um, she told me to tell him a lie. And she said, either he's going to open you back up or he's going to refer you to another physician that should help you. Well, he referred me to a uh, gynecological oncologist. And when I went into the office, he was like, little short man. He was like, I don't know why he sent you to me. I don't treat, I treat women with gynecological cancers. This is not, I don't do anything at all with hysterectomies. And I didn't do this surgery. He said, but he had ordered some tests before I got there. And he said, but what I do want to let you know is that you have a bile duct that's blocked and you have a hernia there, which explained why I was having a hard time using the bathroom. But I was thinking it was stress. It was, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or something like that. He was like, you need to get this fixed as soon as possible because, and if you don't, you're going to pass away. And I was like, what? And I said, I just started a job because I had been off on work all this time. I started a brand new job and I said, well, can it wait six weeks? I need to get through the training because they sent someone here to train me. And he was like, no, you need to get it done as soon as possible. And I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? And it was across town. And I remember on the drive home saying, God, help me because I have two kids. I had um, a young daughter and a, a son that had in, was in high school or no, he had just graduated. But I'm like, I have children that I'm I'm trying to live for. And so I was like, OK, I had visited a lot of OBGYNs in the North County area of St. Louis and nobody would touch me. So I I guess I was using my critical thinking skills and I got on my insurance website and I, he, cause the doctor told me you need a general surgeon. He was like, you uh, OBGYN doesn't really have to do this. Just get a general surgeon. And so I was like, okay, based on my experiences and what I've been going through, what's the richest zip code in St. Louis. And I put that in the, in Google, even back then it was an encyclopedia and 63017 is the, the wealthiest zip code in St. Louis. And there's only one hospital in that zip code. So it made it very easy. Um, and I went on St. Luke's um, website and I clicked, you know, refer physician, general surgeon. And I'm getting really excited because I was like, okay, maybe this is going to be the thing. So I called the office and I told the woman what I needed. But I said, this is a result of surgery. And she said, well, the doctor that you are asking for, he doesn't do that type of surgery. So then I started crying, like hyperventilating crying, because she was like, no, it's OK, but we have a, a this is a surgical group. We have a surgeon that does that. I said, well, can you ask him if he'll see me? So I'm like bawling and she was like, it's OK. So I was like, please make sure that he'll see me. So she said, hold on. And when they got me off a of hold, it was him. And I told him what happened and he was like, 
um, we need to get your records. I said, I have my records. I have my records and the pathology report from all of my hospitalizations, what happened in the operating room, because I couldn't read it. I didn't know why I hemorrhaged. I blamed myself because doctors have a tendency to blame patients. I thought that I didn't get take my, I thought I didn't get my off of my um, blood thinner quick enough. And he said, well, I'll do the surgery. And so fast forward, the surgery, um, he did what we thought was surgery. He opened me up and he said, I can't see your insides. You have, if it appears like there's like some kind of veil or when I open you up, I would have to cut through infection and I close you back up, but I'm going to refer you to a, um, an infectious disease doctor. So fast forward, because we're on a podcast, fast forward that, um, infectious disease doctor was treating me for about five years, I guess. And he finally said, do you, let's see if you have AIDS. Have you had an AIDS test recently? And I was like, no. And he said, let's see if you have HIV or AIDS. Cause that would under explain a whole lot. And I didn't have AIDS. And so he was like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Now, mind you, he had, he had treated me for years. I had still had other surgeries that still are open today. This was back <laughs> years ago. And he said, um, I'm going to refer you to an immunologist. And she's one of the best in St. Louis. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And I trust this doctor with my life. I really do. And I was in her office a total, a total of us seven minutes talking. Cause by this time I'm, you know, really micro micromanaging how doctors treat me. And it took her seven minutes of questions. Every question she asked me to answer was yes. Mm. Uh, you know, yes. And I was like, yes. And so she said, have you had an, um, a pneumonia or a flu shot yet this season? And I said, I've never had a pneumonia shot. And she said, you wouldn't because you're under 50, but I'm going to give you um, a pneumonia and a flu shot. And I want you to come back tomorrow and we need to draw your blood. And so they did the vaccine challenge and they sent it off to the lab. And on November 11th of 2014, I was diagnosed with primary immune deficiency. And when I tell you, Nicole, I, I cried like my mother, my grandmother, my grandparents all died at the same time. I mean, like, Cried to the point where I, I had to go to bed because my head had expanded because it affirmed that there was nothing psychologically wrong with me because I had had doctors tell me with other things, oh, have you seen a therapist? You know, I've been, I have, I've had a psych consult. I lost my vision when I had my daughter and when I went to the nurse's station to ask them to shine a little light in my eye. I don't know what that means, but I thought we need to do something that I had a whole team of um, medical staff turn around and look at me. And when they looked at me, they were looking at me like there was something wrong with me. And then that made me cry. And I went to the room to call my doctor. And I said, there's something wrong with my right eye and I can't see. And he said, yeah, they told me that they thought you were having about a post postpartum psychosis. And so yeah. to get this diagnosis of something physical being wrong with me was a relief. Um, I didn't even care what it was. I just had a name for it. Your, your, thank you. First, thank you for sharing that because I can imagine even though it's been some years that there is still some trauma associated with that. And so I just really want to honor that Absolutely. and acknowledge that. 
Um, I'm feeling it in my body and it wasn't even happening to me. Um, so thank you for sharing that so transparently. And, you know, one of the things that, one of the questions I was going to ask you, I feel like you, you've already answered it. So I'm just going to kind of walk back through some of the things that you said, because I really wanted to explore your specific experience as a Black woman with PI and, and how, if any, how that impacted your journey. And, and, and again, I feel like you shared that already. So I'm going to highlight some things that you said. One is that you felt the need when you were searching for answers and searching for a surgeon that you had that internal wisdom that you needed to search St. Louis, Missouri's richest zip code. So that tells me that you have had experiences that informed your, um, you know, your journey in the healthcare system and your understanding was that you needed to go where people that maybe don't look like you get care. Is that an accurate statement? Absolutely. St. Louis is very segregated and I've lived on opposite ends of the country and I've never experienced um, racism medically like like I've seen here. Not necessarily that I I experienced it. I've seen it happen to other people. Um, I can also say that it's not just to be seen by black doctors because I don't think that's the problem either. Uh, yes, we need black doctors. We need black everything, you know, to make make it look like the United States. The training that doctors get is not conducive to help black people. Um, it's just not. It's because I had a black woman tell me after being in the hospital for a week and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me that I needed to see a psych uh, a psychologist uh, and she was going to write me a psych consult for an infection that would not go away and it was making me irate that they were coming into my room all the time asking me the same questions it's like I and also I've all of my doctors at one point were black all of them, OBGYN, primary, uh, primary care doctor, um, my gastroenterologist, all of them, because I've had these, I've had, I've been chronically um, ill most of my life. Um, I've just been able to manage it or, you know, not really think about it. And also I am a type A personality person. I get really um, not hyper-focused, but I'm hyper-vigilant about little things. And I do pay a lot of attention to detail and it it irks me to no end when doctors don't, when they brush you off and say, oh, that's nothing. Or it's like, do I need to be bleeding from the head and from my feet for you to pay attention to what I'm saying to you? And so as a Black woman, um, being a caregiver, and also I used to be the person that everybody likes to take to the doctor with them because I always ask very exact questions. What is that? What does she need to do? Does she need to eat that with, uh, take that with food? Do we need to do this? Why is this not working? So that was, that's been my role as a friend and a, and a family member for as long as I can remember. And it's just, it's really, it was really, it's frustrating even now to see that people who look like me don't get the same, don't get fair treatment. And then I'm also a woman. 
you know, textbooks in, in medicine, I know, I'm convinced they may have a Rebecca or a, a Tina as an author, but they're written by white men. And it shows because it's very focused on like data. And it's like, but if they're, if the people that are not in the conversation are not studied, then your data is flawed. Absolutely. Oh, you have touched on so many things. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna, sorry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, it's fine. You, you brought up so many really good things. I want to, I want to unpack one of them. And that is to underscore what you said about um, the solution is not solely to have more black doctors. And, and you also said, and I agree with you, diversity is important. And we've had other conversations in this podcast series about the importance of diversifying the healthcare workforce. And as you stated, that is not the sole solution because at the end of the day, due to structural racism, which permeates medicine and healthcare, you still have individuals that are practicing within a system that was not designed to properly care for black and brown and other marginalized communities. So I, I really appreciate you highlighting that. Um, and then the other thing that you talked about is just this idea of really gaslighting, um, you know, which we know is common in medicine. It's common, particularly with women patients, and then even more so often with Black women or Latina women or disabled women. You know, that's that concept of intersectionality where I'm a woman and I'm something else. So the idea of medical gaslighting is, you know, that you are going, you're, you're, you're taking care of yourself the best way you know how. You're being blamed for your own medical condition and you're being ignored and your concerns are being dismissed. So, you know, you really have just highlighted, I'm sure, again, the journey of many people with PI, but, but also underscoring the elements about being a person of color that make that journey even more difficult. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And it's so fascinating that through all of that, when you finally got to the specialist, the immunologist, you know, who sees this all the time, seven minutes of, of questions and answers and, and you had your diagnosis. And I also just want to highlight what you said about the relief, you know, I mean, it's like no, no one technically would celebrate having a diagnosis of primary immunodeficiency, but for you, it was validation. All that you had gone through, all that you had been telling doctors for years and years and years, and finally having an explanation for the things that happened to you. And, and no, it's not in your head. So I, I again, I felt that. I, I felt that in my bones. I just appreciate you, you sharing that. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your experience with connecting with other patients with PI who look like you. Have you had an opportunity to connect with patients with, with PI who, you know, are black or have another, maybe they're a member of another minoritized group, because again, we know this is a rare disease. And then we also know that within PI, somewhat due to underdiagnosis and, and misdiagnosis, um, we have not yet identified a lot of patients that look like you. Okay. So let me tell you, when I got myself together, by the that Sunday, this was on a Wednesday. I'm telling you, I cried until I couldn't really see. But when I got myself together, it was on a Sunday, and I Googled primary immune deficiency. Because I this is the thing. I knew what primary immune deficiency was, right? Because 
this is going to sound really strange and and I'm an empath, right? I remember David Vetter, they call him the boy in the bubble. And it always made me feel bad. Like, why do they call him that? When he was on the news, I remember it was on ABC back in the 80s. They did some kind of, I, I think it may have been on 2020. I will never forget it. And I used to, I cried for him because I was like, how horrible is that to have people looking at you through a glass like you're a specimen, right? And he didn't have friends to play with. He couldn't go outside, like all of the things. And so I knew, I remember that. I didn't know that there were so many immune deficiencies, right? I have subclass IgG and CVID, common variable immune deficiency for those people who don't know what that is. So I knew that part, but I went to Google and I found um, the IDF. And I started volunteering for IDF and I volunteered for years and I still do in some capacity. Um, there are education days that um, take place. And I think I had attended two or three education days before I ever saw a black person. And it was a, 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 young, a young black boy, probably about 10 and his parents came. Those were the only people that I have ever seen. And I was so excited to see them, <laughs> but I, I was volunteering at the event and I didn't get a chance. They left before I could get a chance to talk to them. Cause you know, education days run from like eight 30 ish to three. It's an all day thing. And I didn't get a chance to talk to them, but though he is the only person that I've ever seen in person that has it. But you know what happens, Nicole, when you carry this type of trauma, I'm just realizing that this is trauma. This is because of my therapist, that every time that I hear someone says that their children have chronic ear infections or they had to get tubes, I'm like, make sure you have them tested for, <laughs> you have them tested for this, this, and this, and this. You make sure, no, ask for an immunologist. So, and I don't like people to give me advice. But I feel compelled to have to do something because your baby is not getting ear infections just because, just because there is a reason. And I find myself um, doing that a lot within the Black community because I know that we are so underdiagnosed. I just, I know it. I, I, I feel it. Babies that have colds all the time, that's not normal. They, oh, they go to daycare. No, it's something wrong with their immune system. Like, stop. So I have to stop myself, but those are the only times that I ever remember um, seeing in person. Mm -hmm. Now with the IDF, um, you know, when you all do the walks, I've seen like pictures and things like that. I've never been part of that, but I've seen pictures, but I've only been in the company of in the room, same room with one person, one other time that I, that I know of. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. And I love you're leading me into my next question as you talk about this, this how being compelled to share with other black families or, or mothers or fathers of children, you know, make sure you do this, make sure they get tested for that. And you are a natural advocate. And so I really wanted to also ask you about your organization because you're not just an advocate with friends and family members or people that you may meet, you know, you have found it a nonprofit organization, Rare and Black. And I'd love for you to talk about that and just share briefly with the audience 
what your organization does? Well, Rare and Black um, was founded in on. I'm I'm a big I'm big on birthdays and symbols and uh, all of the things. Uh, Rare and Black is uh, my baby, and it was uh, founded on March 12th of 2020, which was my grandfather's um, grandfather's birthday. And my grandfather used to my grandfather and my great grandmother with my infections or things would always give me like old wives tell like I every Sunday I would have to drink cod liver oil um black draw uh uh black draw cod liver oil all all of the things to get me to be able to be healthy because this has been a, a lifelong thing right and so rare and black was uh I remember my godmother, when I was going through this, before I got a diagnosis, she was like, you need to write a book because I'm, I'm a writer too. You need to write a book. And she was big on the NAACP. She used to be involved on a national level with the NAACP. So it was only right that, and I've always been a person that likes to buck the system and and not and a nonconformist. And I used to get put out of school because of my mouth and, you know, me challenging decisions. That's just my nature. I don't like people telling me what to do. And I don't like people to um, to tell other people what to do, like let people live. So uh, Rare and Black's mission is to empower and uplift Black people living with rare diseases. And also to make sure that um, they have uh, advocacy promotion and we drive legislative change because a lot of issues that rare patients have is based on policies and procedures, not just legislatively, but structurally and institutionally um, that affect their, that affect their, their treatment and how they're treated. And also uh, education. I'm huge on, like I used to, when I was little, I used to be my the teacher in my friend. We would play school and I would be the teacher. And then when you pass the grade, you would sit up another step. And so I'm a natural, I'm curious by nature. And so I also believe that Black people as a whole, there, you know, in this day and age, the internet is huge. And there is a what I'm, what I feel, this is my feeling. Don't come for IDF and don't come for me. There's more bad information that floats among the internet through social media than it is good because you can get on there and say, hey, hey, Nicole, did you know that um, Cumarin can cure herpes? And somebody can retweet that and retweet it and retweet it and retweet it. You remember with uh, COVID, if you put your head over a um, some water on the stove, that and it's like no. So I believe that ed educating in a in a responsible and and productive and effective manner would help Black people because I have nine rare conditions, um, and it's hard to explain to people how I am or how I'm feeling because I don't look sick, right? Nobody ever, I had to tell someone the other day, if you see me out, if you see me on Capitol Hill, 
if you see me speaking somewhere, please understand that it took a lot of mental, um, it, it took a lot of mental uh, dexterity to get me here. I also have to debrief. If you see me for a week somewhere, please understand it's going to take me two or three weeks to get back. And if you see me back to back, like this coming week, I'm going traveling for a week. And then I got a two week, I mean, a two day thing. And then I'm gone for a week again. Please understand that it's taken a lot for me to show up. And I'm only showing up because I think that it's beneficial. And the education piece, I do that so I can take in information so I could pass it on. And what I'm finding, what has been the biggest struggle for me this year is loved ones, loved ones, like really close loved ones that I have had, have passed away from rare cancers and they did not want treatment. They wouldn't even go to see, like my aunt passed away in May, but she would not go and see an oncologist to tell her what the options were. She went with the diagnosis and she was like, I'm not letting them put that in me. And I'm like, but chemo is so much different. Like, can we just be educated, just be educated, right? Go and see what they have to say. And if at that point you feel like, okay, I don't want, I don't do, want to do radiation. That's fine. But find out what your options are so you can make an informed decision. I don't want anyone to be ignorant and people say that that's a bad word. Ignorance is without knowledge, right? I don't want you to be ignorant to the fact that there are constantly things that are ever-changing, especially in the cancer landscape. You don't necessarily have to, you know, be doubled over after you come get from getting your chemo treatment. And you don't know, and these were rare cancers. I have a, one of my best friends now is battling um, a rare cancer. And I really had to pray and talk to her and say, just give it a try. Like if you get two treatments and you feel like I don't want to do this anymore, then don't. But I finding that that's with older people and black people have a reason not to trust the system, but everybody in medicine is not bad. Correct. You know, and that's why your organization is so important, you know, because you've highlighted and we've had a, another episode about this medical mistrust which was earned, you know, it's not by accident. And so I can only imagine for you and being the face for rare and black and having a place where people who may be mistrustful of the healthcare system for valid reasons have an opportunity to get information. And basically you're a trusted voice, you know, you're you're a trusted individual. And, I, and it's, it just, it's so important to have that, especially in the rare disease space. And I'm, we're, we're very thankful that despite all that you've gone through and all that you have described, you still have found time and space to advocate for others. So thank you for that. And as we wrap up, this has just been riveting. I have one final question. And I know, you know, you shared some tips and, and I hope people go back and listen to this over and over again, healthcare providers and patients and families alike. But I'm going to ask you to boil it down to one nugget one piece of advice for healthcare providers and one piece of advice for either patients or families with regard to advocacy with regard to rare disease you know what because you've learned a lot in your journey so if if you could offer one piece of advice for the medical community what would you say i would 
tell anyone that's is seeing patient front facing that to be more curious, right? Don't necessarily go by the textbook, right? Because when I go to the emergency room, when I had staff in MRSA, do you know what my temperature was? My temperature was 97.4. I had staff in MRSA at the very same time. Um, no, no, I don't get temperatures of a hundred. I got a temperature in 2019 and the nurse thought that I was going crazy. I'm like, oh my God. She was like, <laughs> she was like, hun, what's wrong? I was like, I haven't had a temperature in over 25 years. Like you have no idea how happy this makes me. So that lets me know my immunoglobulin therapy is working, right? So I want um, anyone that sees patients to know that you don't know what a rare disease patient looks like. Like you have no idea because I get told all the time, oh, you look at your skin is looking real. You, what are you doing with your skin? And it's like, do you know I have five open wounds? Like five. And so I want them to understand that to be curious to find out what is going on and not to just jump to the textbook because we're not in textbooks. We're rare, right? And unless they are curious by nature and want to study us, then there are no textbooks. So make sure that you are um, really thinking about the whole patient and be trauma-informed, meaning asking, always having the question in the back of your mind, especially if you've seen this patient more than once with the same issue, and they're acting a certain way, right? Because they write down notes. I, I've been written about patient is hypervigilant. She's non-compliant. All of those things, right? But find out why. Why Why are you that way? What happened to you to make you do this? Or why are you making this decision? If I don't want to take this, why? why? That's my thing for a patient. I mean, for um, healthcare providers. And the second for patients is... If you hear nothing else from me, please hear me well. You can leave your doctor. I don't care if he birthed all of your 10 babies and he and your uncle play golf at the golf club course. If you have been knowing him, if he treats you for free, because the OBGYN that I was telling you about, he had treated me when I didn't have any insurance and I trusted him. If you are going to a doctor for pain and you've been going to him for a year and they can't figure out what's leave, you are not. And I tell people this a lot when I'm talking, you are not married to your doctor. And even if you were, you can get a divorce. We live in a time you can just, I'm, <laughs> I'm changing. Like I want, I want something different. I want patients to know that the doctor works for you not the other way around. If you have a doctor that talks to you like you are an, uh, an invalid and you have some type of um, issue that they can't get past, leave them. There are many doctors. And if you can't find, get with an organization that can help you find a physician, 
because I meet people all the time all over the country that see doctors here in St. Louis that have never stepped foot in St. Louis. But because they may be an endocrinologist that specializes in this rare condition, they're the only one in the country that has published papers. They see them. Just do due, due, due diligence. And everybody doesn't have the same health literacy, but find somebody to help to help you. Oh, I I love your advice. Absolutely love your advice. Dion, thank you so much. As we close, please let the audience know how can they find out more about you and Rare and Black? Um, you can find Rare and Black on all social platforms at Rare and Black. Um, so we are on LinkedIn at Rare and Black, Instagram at Rare and Black, and you can go to our newly, um, we're working on a website, but it's rareandblack.org. Awesome. Thank you so thank much. Thank you Dion. for having me, Nicole. It was a pleasure. Same. Thank you.